I'm very excited today to host Cully Kavnis and Chase Lockmiller, both of Crusoe Energy. This is going to be a fascinating and open-ended conversation about cryptocurrency, energy, computer science, quant finance, the environment, and maybe a little bit of mountaineering as well. Guys, welcome to Real Vision. Thanks for having us. I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Ash. Chase, let's jump in and start with you. Tell us a little bit about your story. You've led a fascinating life. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, Coley and I actually grew up together. Uh, we went to high school together in, in, in Colorado. Um, went to a high school named, called Kent Denver. And uh, after you know leaving uh, to go to college, I, I went to MIT as an undergrad um, and studied math and physics there. And not you know, my original plan was to actually be a uh, theoretical physicist, was, was kind of what I set out to be, and um, did a couple summers of research and uh, found out that that space moved incredibly slowly, and uh, I had a lot of energy and uh, kind of wanted to get involved in something that moved a little bit, uh, a little, at a little bit faster pace. So I uh, ended up uh, going into the, the uh, field of quant finance, um, which was sort of an academic but, you know, very fast-moving space, uh, where... You know, I was a quant portfolio manager building uh, large-scale AI and machine learning models uh, with massive data sets, uh, and then uh, building you know inference models that would sort of uh, forecast securities prices, and then we would capitalize on those with uh, you know automated trading strategies that we would build out. So uh, capitalized on it with you know various high-frequency and uh, statistical arbitrage strategies, um, and that was kind of a it was a fun adventure for uh, for a decade, um, but you know, at, at some point, I, I was kind of uninspired by a lot of the you know work I was doing, um, and wanted to you know explore something else. Um, and also did a, a grad school at, at Stanford as well. So I, I did a master's degree at Stanford uh, in in computer science um, with a focus on artificial intelligence. So that was like a lot of what I was focused on doing as a quant. And uh, uh, you know, I ended up you know, as many say, kind of going down the crypto rabbit hole and, uh, you know, getting really excited about, you know, what, you know, the, uh, what was being built out both from, uh, this base layer of, a you know, uh, monetary financial ecosystem, uh, with, you know, what was happening in, in, in the Bitcoin ecosystem, as well as, uh, you know, what was happening across, uh, innovations across, you know, other, other, uh, uh, other cryptocurrencies that were being built, like like the Ethereum blockchain, where they were enabling smart contracts and uh, you know just a bunch of really really new technologies that I thought were you know transformative for society. So ended up uh, meeting a gentleman named Olaf Carlson Wee, which you know I think you just had on your show. Um, yes. And uh, Olaf's a great guy. Uh, he he had just left Coinbase when I met him. Uh, and he was starting a, uh, uh, a hedge fund that was investing exclusively in digital assets and cryptocurrencies. And at the time, this was a this was a very very you know unique innovative idea. There weren't you know crypto focused hedge funds, um, and I thought it was a great opportunity for me to partner with him and uh, you know leverage a lot of my skill set uh, around you know understanding financial markets and uh, market microstructure uh, while also being paired up with one of the you know. Uh, best people in the world, as far as you know, understanding this new asset class was, that was being built out uh, in the in the cryptocurrency world, and so uh, you know, spent spent 2017 there, and um, you know, we had kind of a, a crazy ride, uh, you know, growing tremendously uh, through the the ICO boom. Um, you know, we were kind of in in uh, in the center of the world for for all of that happening. I actually talked to you guys in 2017 when I was uh, working at uh, at 
at Coindesk uh, as a reporter. And I remember uh, the first time I actually heard about Web 3.0 uh, was from someone uh, at your shop. Oh, cool. Yeah. Was it was it Ryan? Ryan Zur, maybe? It was indeed Ryan, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, those were fun early days uh, in the ecosystem. And um, it felt like, you know, the space got a little ahead of itself. It was kind of like, oh, my God, blockchain's going to, you know, revolutionize commerce and, you know, change uh, everything and, you know, save the baby seals and, you know, whatever. It, it was just kind of a it got a little bit ahead of itself. Um, but uh, I think it was an important moment. Uh, for this technological shift because it brought a lot of attention to the space. It brought capital to the space. And most importantly, it brought talent to the space. And uh, you're seeing a lot of the fruits of the labor from the talent migration that we saw in 2017 uh, being born today with a lot of innovations that are sort of taking place across the whole landscape. So, um, you know, I ended up... uh, Anyway, back to my story. So I I ended up leaving uh, Polychain in 2018 to pursue a personal... Uh, dream of mine, which was uh, climbing Mount Everest. Um, you know, I grew up near the mountains in Colorado, and I was always inspired uh, by wanting to, you know, uh, climb the tallest mountain in the world. Um, I had a middle school teacher who had a uh, husband named Eric Weinmayer that uh, was the first blind man to climb the Seven Summits, and he was training for this um, at the time when she was my teacher, and I got to spend a lot of time with him and you know his his seeing eye dog and. I was just really inspired by him as like a human being, like going after this like amazing challenge uh, and doing it, you know, without being able to see. So I, I just always was, that always stuck with me and it was, it was kind of a personal uh, passion of mine. These, these seven summits you make reference to, of course, are the uh, seven 8,000 meter summits uh, in the world, which I think hadn't been climbed by a sighted person uh, until what, the 1950s? I mean, this is an extraordinary accomplishment. So it's actually, there, there's, there's 14, 8,000 meter peaks. That's a different challenge. There's the seven summits is the highest uh, peak on each continent. So it's, uh, uh, so not all of those are 8,000 meters. It, it's, it's also a difficult challenge, not nearly as challenging as the 14, 8,000 meter peaks. Cause those are all, you know, mostly in the Himalaya. Chase, this is why I host a show about crypto. and not <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually just, I just saw this show where uh, it's called Welcome to Earth. It's on National Geographic. And Will Smith and Eric Weinmayer, the first episodes, they go to this volcano. Uh, and they, like, are, are basically walking down into the caldera of a of a boiling volcano. And he's and you don't realize until halfway into the show that it's Eric Weinmayer. And he can't see. He's just, like, listening to these missiles being fired out of the volcano. And they're kind of, like, dodging bombs of magnets. That's insane. He's, he, the guy's really incredible. I mean, he, he got into, like... Uh whitewater rafting and uh or whitewater kayaking and he like i think kayaked down the entire colorado river like through really crazy terrain just being blind i I mean the guy's the guy's a a superhuman but very very inspiring nonetheless um and uh yeah so so you know that was a that was a dream of mine and that so i I set out to 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 do that spent a couple months in nepal and uh actually summited I, i i actually took a bitcoin flag to the summit um, so, you know, it's kind of the, uh, Bitcoin was able to go to the top of the world. It was a pretty, uh, exciting moment for, for the space. Um, but anyway, you know, while I was up there, I was, I was thinking a lot about, you know, kind of what I wanted to do next. And, uh, you know, I was really inspired by, you know, working on this, uh, infrastructure layer of computing because I had sort of seen this whole thing play out with, you know, artificial intelligence. Um, you know, really gaining a lot of traction in like the, you know, 2010s. Um, and, 
seeing that mostly unfold on the back of, uh, you know, increased access to significant data sets and cheaper cost of computation. So like those two factors are the things that really drove, uh, you know, a lot of the innovations taking place in AI and deep learning um, that, uh, you know, have unlocked a lot of value for society at large. And, and I was a big believer that, you know, those two forces were going to continue to propel humanity for, forward, uh, innovating within the field of AI. And then on the secondary, uh, and then on the, you know, the second piece that I was really inspired by was just, you know, see, witnessing this global monetary ecosystem being completely rewritten and that being powered fundamentally by this base layer of computation um, that was entirely distributed, entirely decentralized, um, and entirely permissionless. Um, that, you know, it was just a really exciting moment to feel like th this is the space and that's, that's sort of the layer that I want to be working on is that infrastructure layer of computing. And uh, I'll let Coley give maybe his, his background, but I ended up coming back from Mount Everest and, uh, you know, shortly thereafter, Coley and I ended up starting Crusoe Energy uh, on the back of some of the thoughts that I was having, as well as some of the thoughts that, you know, he was kind of having at the time, which, you know, I'll let him sort of share his, his journey um, in getting to founding our company. So Kali, that's quite a toss. You too also have a fascinating background, an incredibly interesting life, very different. Tell us a little bit about your story. You guys obviously have known each other since you were kids. Uh, tell us about your journey and how you guys got back together to found this company. Yeah, happy to do it. And I've got to say, Ash, this is exciting. I'm, I'm a big Real Vision fan. I've been, I've been watching for a couple of years now. So I'm excited to finally be here and, and talk with you. It's true. He's always... He's always, you know, all, all my catch-ups, you know, he's like, oh my God, I was listening to this episode of Real Vision last night. And, you know, they had this guest yeah. on, was, you know, and then he'll like go down this long, uh, you know, thread with me. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. So he's, he's definitely like uh, not lying when he says he's a huge fan of the show. Well, it's amazing to have both of you here to share your stories and to talk about what you're doing. Uh, so, Kali, give us a little bit of a sense of your background because it's also a very interesting one. Yeah, so yeah, I grew up in Denver, like Chase mentioned. We grew up, uh, went to high school together here. Um, I went down a very different career path than Chase. I went into the energy industry. Um, I started off in renewable power development and then transitioned to, to more the oil and gas side of things before starting Crusoe with Chase. But, um, you know, kind of the, the backstory there is, I went to Middlebury College, uh, which is a very environmentally oriented uh, student body. So it's really at the center of the climate movement in a lot of ways. Um, 350.org is a prominent climate nonprofit started by Bill McKibben there. And, and it's just basically a part of every lunch and dinner table conversation with your classmates there. It's, it's all framed around climate and sort of environmental activism. Um, my family's background is in oil and gas. So my grandfather and father were both entrepreneurs in the oil and gas business. And I initially thought I was going to follow in their footsteps. So I, was, I studied geology. I majored in geology, also studied economics, and was initially planning to, to go into that industry. But this experience at Middlebury really did sort of transform my outlook. You know, I had a lot of sort of you know, fights with my dad about climate change and ultimately went into the geothermal energy uh, power development industry. So this is drilling wells, but not for oil and gas, it's for steam and hot water to make renewable power, uh, mission, you know, emissions-free power. And I had an interesting opportunity to do a Thomas Watson fellowship. Thomas J. Watson was the founder of IBM. He created this program that funds 40 students per year to uh, pursue pretty unique and esoteric research projects uh, that are more or less independent. You structure your own 
uh, curriculum and, and your own learning, and you have to leave your home country for a full year. Or uh, if you come back early, they sort of take your funding away. That's the one requirement is that you're sort of banished from your home country. Um, so I, I went around the world kind of pursuing um, an education in what I ended up calling the triangle of ease, the relationship between energy, the environment, and the economy. And really it ended up being a study of like, what is the morality behind the energy industry? And how do you prioritize environment against economic and prosperity for humans? And energy is just really, it, it is the most fascinating problem because um, it's so often being pulled in either of those two directions whenever you're making a decision around energy. So I spent a year going to um, Iceland. I spent five months in China. I spent a lot of time in <clears throat> Western Europe, Spain, around solar development. Um, in China, obviously, it was much more exposed to coal, but also the human side of things, just the, the sort of desperate appetite for more access to energy. Um, in Western Europe, it was much more the environmental side of things, the, the prioritization of renewables and, and you know, low emission uh, technologies. And then I spent some time in, in the Andes in South America, which was at that time viewed as a potential for um, new geothermal resource development. Also some Caribbean islands that have volcanic geothermal resources. So I, I really got to sort of travel the world and understand the um, development of projects, the financing of projects, and then also the sort of policy and social and community side of energy and, and just sort of formed a view on all that. Um, I was hired by one of the companies that I essentially interned with, which was a geothermal power plant development uh, firm. And so I spent the next few years of my career developing uh, geothermal power plants, trying to put together projects and finance those power plants and bring those to, uh, to the point where they were generating power on the grid. Um, you know, we had a number of assets in Iceland. Uh, we had a, a project in, in southern Germany, uh, Japan, Taiwan. I, was, I got to continue traveling pretty heavily there. At some point, I went back to business school. I got an MBA at Oxford in the UK and then came back to Denver, uh, which is where my family was. And there was an opportunity to join a boutique oil and gas investment bank, um, which is still in the energy space, but was bringing me back more towards that family background. Uh, and then from there, I was recruited to be the vice president of finance at a private equity-backed oil and gas company. Small team, and we had some exploratory acreage um, in the Denver Julesburg Basin, which is kind of the local shale play here in Colorado. And we were drilling wells in an area that was miles away from the core of the activity and it was viewed as sort of more risky or speculative. Um, and because of that, there wasn't any gas pipeline infrastructure in that area. And so we we drilled a pair of, of two-mile horizontal wells into this Niobrara formation and we discovered essentially a new uh, a new oil field, a small extension of the Denver Julesburg Basin. Um, and we were producing oil from those wells. They were highly economic, uh, but there was no gas pipeline in the area. So the industry standard is you put the oil in a truck, you truck that to the refinery for marketing, um, and the gas, if there's no pipeline, it gets flared. This means it gets lit on fire and wasted in the air. And and, uh, and burned, obviously, in a way that produces hydrocarbons, right? Produces it, pollution. It's burned in an incomplete way, where a percentage of the methane actually goes straight to the atmosphere. And methane is, we'll come to this later, it's a very potent greenhouse gas. It, depending on the time frame you're looking at, it's 84 times as powerful as CO2 as a greenhouse gas. So for me, this was sort of horrific. Um, very full circle for me, you know, going back to my Middlebury experience, you can imagine me telling my friends in sort of, um, liberal Vermont communities that, you know, 
I'm responsible for midstream and marketing at a firm that is burning several million cubic feet of, of natural gas per day, um, you know, wastefully. And, and right. I was trying everything in my power to solve that problem, kind of looking at all the options in the marketplace. How do you deal with stranded gas to avoid flaring it? And none of those technologies were really scalable or economic um, to the point that would work for for our project, but then more broadly, I'm just learning this is a huge problem for the whole industry. There, there's actually 13 billion cubic feet of natural gas getting flared every day. Um, if you capture this amount of gas, it would power the entire continent of Africa. It wow. is an enormous amount of waste, and it's an enormous source of methane emissions, um, which if you follow the most recent con- you know, co- uh, conference of parties in Glasgow, it became the focus uh, it's like clearly, this is the low-hanging fruit. If you if you can eliminate methane emissions, it is sort of the best thing we can do to extend the climate runway, buy more time for the energy transition, and you know, kind of look forward to talking to you about what that all could look like yeah. and, and what that could mean. But um, in the background, I've been like Chase, interested in Bitcoin from sort of a libertarian perspective. I, I was exposed to it really early. I, I read the white paper in 2011. I bought my first Bitcoin in 2012. Uh, from a friend who was working at Google at the time and started mining as a hobby in 2017. And uh, I don't know if you can see this unit behind me, but um, one of the early ASICs. And um, <clears throat> when Chase and I reconnected, you know, he had such a depth of experience and expertise around crypto at that point. He really was like sort of a world expert in the field. Um, and the, the kind of idea, the insight that uh, was percolating was if you could capture this wasted energy, you could solve an enormous environmental problem and waste problem, but you could also produce low-cost power for um, for Bitcoin mining, which is scaling rapidly and consuming a lot of electricity. That's actually the big ESG or environmental problem for crypto is the energy consumption. Right. And so actually one problem could solve the other. The energy appetite of Bitcoin is not necessarily a bad thing if you use it to kill flares and eliminate methane emissions and waste in the traditional fossil fuel industry. Um, this becomes a really powerful, like virtuous cycle, uh, where the low cost allows for scale, and the scale allows for environmental solution. And so we started talking about that, and um, you know, developed a system of mobile, modular, rugged data centers that are appropriate to operate in the oil field. And we bring those loaded with ASICs, Bitcoin mining hardware, directly to the site where gas is being flared. We capture the flaring gas in a power generation system that produces electricity, and we use that electricity literally in the adjacent data center that's a containerized sort of sh- shipping container format um, to consume all that energy without having to build a pipeline offsite or power lines offsite or any kind of infrastructure. Um, and we can connect that via satellite internet or other kind of wireless networking. So we can basically deploy this quickly anywhere. Um, that has view of the sky, which is, you know, any oil field location is going to have that. Mm. So we started this company in 2018 with that concept and um, and have scaled it since then. We've got 110 employees now. We've got more than 60 data centers operating throughout North Dakota, Montana, uh, Wyoming, and Colorado. And we've, uh, we've, you know, we've become one of the largest um, privately owned Bitcoin mining companies, and we do it all with... Um, with flare gas, with otherwise wasted natural gas that would have been burned incompletely. Um, whereas when we put the gas through our generator system, we get 99.9% combustion of that natural gas. So there's actually a huge reduction in methane emissions and 
that's a big reduction in carbon equivalent, CO2 equivalent emissions. It's about 63% less CO2 equivalent when it goes through our system versus just continued status quo flaring. Um, so that, that, that's more or less my background and a little bit on what Crusoe's up to. There's, there's a lot to talk about where we're going and, and it's, you know, we have a vision that's broader than, than Bitcoin and it begins to tap into, um, you know, energy intensive computing more broadly. Maybe we can, we can talk about that, but, uh, that's kind of the introduction there. Yeah, there's so much to talk about here. I mean, the first thing that strikes me and probably our viewers is that you're two young guys who could have done just about anything uh, with your backgrounds, and you've found this problem. It's a really interesting one. Obviously, uh, I'm not an expert uh, on the energy side, so let me just see if I understand what you're saying. So basically, you have these uh, you have these uh, these hydrocarbon deposits. You have oil and gas fields out there uh, where the oil is being extracted currently, uh, and the natural gas that is. Uh, that is co-located with the oil uh, has to be basically burned off incompletely um, as, a, as just a consequence of drilling the oil. When you get the oil out of the ground, the gas comes up, uh, they burn it incompletely in a sort of a, in a flare. The idea is that what you guys are doing uh, is burning that gas, capturing that, uh, that gas uh, in an economic way through mining uh, and then burning it more completely, which is actually reducing the total, uh, the total output of uh, greenhouse gases, particularly methane, which, as you point out, um, is far more uh, damaging to the environment than, uh, than than carbon dioxide, for example. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And uh, there's a little bit more we can we can share about that. So, um, you, you know, that actually any economic oil reservoir is going to have some amount of natural gas because that's actually the drive mechanism that gets the oil out of the ground. Um, so as the gas is expanding, it's it's sort of, uh, it's, you know, what's happening scientifically is it's reducing the hydrostatic pressure that's allowing the oil to flow from the reservoir to the surface. Um, not, not to get too technical, but you're not going to have a, a oil well producing that doesn't have some amount of gas as a byproduct. And the challenge is that <clears throat> because oil is a liquid, it's easy to transport versus in, in ships or trucks, um, not necessarily in pipe, doesn't have to be in a pipeline, but gas is in the gas state and it's very hard to capture. And so if and, and gas pipeline infrastructure does not exist everywhere that oil fields exist. Right. Uh, and even if it does, it doesn't necessarily exist in the right capacity and throughput. So you have these situations all around the world where there's um, an oil well that's primarily the economics are driven by the oil and gas is an associated byproduct. And if the gas infrastructure isn't, isn't a fit, isn't a match, either it's not there or there's not enough capacity, that gas goes to flare. That is the sort of default um, or, or not just in the U.S., but across the world. So a large percentage, maybe 20% or more of gas produced alongside oil is flared. Um, and the question then that a lot of people ask is, why, why wouldn't you just shut off all the oil wells that are flaring if this is such a big problem? The answer there is, as you know, and your audience knows, um, the oil price is uh, very responsive to supply and demand. And for example, with covid you know, the worst economic problem we've had as a society, maybe since the Great Depression, you know, shut down the entire world's economy for a period of time. All travel was, was suspended. That was about a 10 percent reduction in the world's demand for oil um, at, at the kind of trough of that dynamic. If you, if you looked at that year on average, it was a 10 percent impact to demand. Um, compare that to what would happen if you shut off 20 percent of supply you'd be sort of talking about an impact that's twice as large um, as COVID. 
if you were to take that approach, which is why it's not really politically um, or, or morally realistic path to go down. And so the, the question then is, what do you do about it? And we think one of the, the obvious things to do about it is capture the flaring and, and eliminate it. If there's a way to do that economically, that's going to be the, the, the way that scales the fastest. And so that's kind of the, the approach we've taken and, um, and the solution we've been, we've been building out since 2018. You know, it's pretty extraordinary that you guys just happened to grow up together. Uh, one guy with a background uh, in oil and gas and another guy with a really deep background uh, in Bitcoin and technology. Uh, and to see this solution and be able to put it together. I know you mentioned, uh, Kali, at the during that conversation, uh, a little bit about the current size and scale of the organization. But this is something that you guys are doing right now at scale today. Tell us a little bit about the operation, what you're doing right now. Yeah, we... we um... Like I mentioned, we have about 110 uh, employees here, and it's a very diverse team. So we, we recruit in everything from top-tier software engineering talent. We have an office in San Francisco, which is an office that Chase leads. Uh, I'm here in, in Denver where we have more um, oil and gas and power generation industry engineers and, and, and professionals, finance folks, legal, that kind of thing. Um, and then in, in Williston, North Dakota, we have a team of electricians, engine mechanics, technicians, and a big warehouse staff for logistics and, and um, handling all the equipment that comes in and out of our operation. Uh, and we even have an in-house computer repair and upgrading facility in Oklahoma and Tulsa. Um, so it's a very diverse set of, of folks. And one of the interesting things, I think it's a, it's been a, a management and leadership challenge, but also a really cool opportunity, has been how to get everybody onto the same page in terms of the mission what we're trying to accomplish here. I think Chase and I both fundamentally view this as an, uh, an opportunity to do some good in the world. And it's important to us that we're recruiting people that see it the same way um, and are bought into that mission. And so on one hand, you've got folks from the traditional energy industry that maybe historically have viewed ESG and environmental things as like FUD, right? This is sort of roadblocks that are developed by adversaries of my industry or something along those lines is um, is one outlook that we have to contend with. And then the other is folks that <clears throat> might come from a background where anything that touches fossil fuels or oil and gas, you know, that must be evil. Uh, that's the Middlebury framework that I certainly experienced, um, you know, going to college in Vermont. And, and so we have to, we have to blend the understanding in, in terms of like, what are we trying to accomplish here and how does it fit into the bigger picture? Um, you know, just to give you a, a quick snapshot of that, and I'd love for, for Chase to kind of um, to, to comment on this too, but with the ESG as FUD piece, uh, I, I, I began with a pretty candid assessment of, of climate and we'll actually, we'll go there with our, our staff and really talk about why we think this matters. I mean, from a geologist perspective, I'll, I'll say, you don't have to believe the IPCC reports or projections around climate. You know, two degree warming can sound abstract to people. I like to just say, when I look back through the geologic record for 500 million years, I see that four out of the last five major extinctions were caused by rapid changes in the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere. Um, the only one that wasn't was the asteroids that took out the dinosaurs, but the Permian extinction, the Ordovician, you know, the, all, all these extinctions were caused by rapid increases or decreases. And um, right now we are adding carbon faster than at any time in that geologic record uh, because of the, the, the rate that we're burning 
fossil fuels. We're, we're adding two or three parts per million per year, where usually that's a, a, a rate that would happen over hundreds of thousands of years. Um, this is like an extremely dangerous experiment to be running with our climate. And has historically, if it, it plays out and you get, you know, several hundred ppm change in carbon over a short period of time, that that's led to extinctions in the past. So I set the try to set the stage. That's why we think this matters from an environment perspective. Um, that's why it should matter to the oil and gas industry. That's why it should matter to the Bitcoin industry. And then the other flip side of it is that <clears throat> oil really matters to human society. A hundred percent of jet travel, airplane travel is with jet fuel. A hundred percent of long oceanic freight is with diesel fuel. A hundred percent of long train freight is diesel fuel. A hundred percent of 18 wheelers that transport all the goods that we depend on to live around our countries um, that's diesel and like 98, 99% of passenger vehicles are gasoline or diesel. Uh, so people have to judge for themselves how quickly that transition is going to actually occur. And what I think, you know, the obvious conclusion is there needs to be an energy transition um, that probably looks like going from, from coal to natural gas to nuclear plus renewables for electricity and probably from uh, oil to EVs for transportation. And that's going to take time. And along the way, the opportunity that Crusoe has is to reduce the impact of the existing fossil fuel system um, and also accelerate the transition to renewables, which some, with some of the work we're doing around stranded wind assets. So, uh, you know, you asked the question about how's the team composed. There's, there's a, we've been able to tell that story and I think find a group of people that really feel passionate about the work that we're doing because we, we do have an opportunity to be an energy transition company that mitigates the impacts of the uh, the the existing fossil fuel-based energy system, but also enable the, the new system that we're trying to build. Well, you know, you've described that hairy problem extremely well. So that's the basic framework here is that this is the challenge, right? IPCC is, of course, is the Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change. Uh, this is the UN uh, scientific consensus as we understand it right now uh, about what's happening with climate change. Uh, simultaneously, we also have the, the reality that uh, for the time being, we are stuck with generation based on fossil fuel uh, for our energy uh, supply and consumption. Uh, this is a very sticky problem that we have and understanding what that transition looks like, trying to figure out how that migration takes place, I think is one of the great challenges of the 21st century uh, for humanity to figure out. I want to go back to Chase. We've talked in some detail, Cully, about the uh, aspects of uh, the energy uh, analysis component of this story. I'm curious, Chase, tell us a little bit about the mining metrics. Give us a sense about what the hash power is, uh, what you guys are doing uh, from uh, a technological perspective. What are some of the metrics that you guys look at? Uh, so, so from a, a mining perspective, I think, you know, we've been able to, uh, you know, we, we view the opportunity in mining um, that, that the way in which we're approaching it is, uh, uh, mostly from a vertical integration standpoint. So we've, we've sort of grown, uh, you know, I think originally, you know, people were mining off, you know, their laptops at their home and then, you know, uh, transitioned to mining off the of GPUs and then eventually people developed ASICs. And then, you know, people recognized that one of the largest operating expenses of those ASICs was power. So people were, you know, scooping up cheap, you know, uh, power purchase agreements from utility providers and, uh, you know, plugging in, uh, large-scale uh, deployments of, of ASICs. We should say that ASICs, uh, 
ASICs are application-specific uh, integrated circuits. These are the dedicated mining rigs uh, that we use today uh, to, uh, to mine Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. That's right. That's right. So uh, the chip is, uh, um, you know, specifically designed to do the SHA-56D uh, hashing function, um, which is the hashing function that secures uh, and processes all of the transactions that are occurring in the uh, global Bitcoin blockchain. Um, so, uh, you know, anyway, th there was sort of this, you know, expansion um, in, in sort of the global mining footprint. And, uh, you know, I think where Crusoe created a really unique solution was that um, we were viewing uh, our infrastructure build out through this lens of, you know, how, how we impact the energy industry. Um, and by coming up with a mechanism that we could actually solve a problem that was affecting oil and gas companies, you know, around the globe um, with, with flaring, um, it, it sort of created a win-win solution that we could create, you know, sort of lowest cost power infrastructure in the world to power the lowest cost computing infrastructure in the world. Um, hmm. You know, I, I think Coley did a great job sort of summarizing, you know, flaring and talking about a lot of these issues, but, you know, this is a top of mind issue for, you know, companies around the globe. Um, the World Bank created this initiative to end routine flaring by 2030. Um, most of the super majors have, have sort of signed on to that pact. Um, Saudi Aramco has signed on to that. Um, you know, they're, you know, these are at this point, you know, with ESG being top of mind for a lot of uh, publicly traded energy companies because it's a mechanism to, to basically, it's a, it's a social license to operate so that they can access the capital they need to grow their business. Um, you know, flaring has actually become a, a top-line board-driven goal for the company. Um, so, you know, we've seen that across a number of our partners that, you know, this has become a uh, one of the key metrics that these companies are going to be measured by. So by being able to solve that problem for them, we've been able to create this ultra-low-cost, uh, you know, power gener distributed power generation infrastructure that we've been able to produce uh, low-cost computing infrastructure on top of. Um, you know, so you, you asked about certain metrics that we're focused on. Um, you know, we don't publicly, uh, you know, we're a private companies, so we don't publicly uh, publish anything around what we're doing from a hash rate perspective or uh, a revenue perspective. Um, but, you know, I think Coley mentioned this earlier, but I think we would, you know, just kind of seeing where publicly traded miners are, I think we'd be, you know, one of the larger, uh, you know, mining operations, uh, certainly in the, in the North America region and, you know, uh, you know, probably around the world. So, uh, yeah, so you know, I think that's that's one aspect so that, that we've been able to sort of vertically integrate the power production that goes into you know the mining process. You know, the other thing that you know we've done is uh, you know because we have sort of a unique setup. It's not like a fixed data center that we have staff going to um, you know you know like a, a, a traditional data center. Um, you know, these are uh, highly distributed units. Um, so we built a lot of software that basically automates um, and creates robustness of operations um, that's been critical to uh, our overall success. So we have a, a big software stack that, that sort of manages um, and, you know, operates all of our, our systems remotely and can kind of uh, get ahead of a lot of, you know, the issues that, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of forecasting, um, you know, in, in dealing with sort of generating our own power. Uh, and in addition to that, you know, a lot of, a lot of miners... You know, there's there's something called mining pools where people basically aggregate their hash rate, um, and then they sort of uh, share in the rewards that are that are uh, you know rewarded to that 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 hash rate. Um, it's sort of like waiters pooling tips in a restaurant, um, where you know they sort of pool all their tips and they say, hey, we're we're going to split it at the end of the night. Um, 
So, uh, you know, those, those mining pools, they charge fees. Um, and then there's, you know, some unique opportunities to capitalize from a profit switching standpoint um, that we've been able to sort of execute on um, as a business. So we, we sort of, you know, vertically integrated on the power production side, on the way we interact with the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, you know, most miners that, you know, you know, that they're actually not the ones controlling, you know, what happens, uh, you know, at, at the at the Bitcoin blockchain level. Um, it's it's the pool that's controlling that. So we we actually right. uh, have vertically integrated that piece as well, sort of building out the whole software stack that manages um, all of our mining footprint. So this is really interesting. You guys basically have these ruggedized data centers that are modular that exist in these uh, shipping containers at the location where the gas is being flared, and then you've built a software stack uh, to integrate. The, the and distribute the uh, the mining effort uh, in a way that allows you then to to pool that and aggregate it together to create generate more hash power is that roughly correct that's roughly correct and you know we've, we've gotten to a size where you know we can we can sort of stomach the variance that comes with you know mining ourselves uh, and you know we don't need to sort of rely on uh, the variance production that comes with a pool this is really interesting technology as well yeah the really cool thing is that you know as in building out all of this infrastructure, I mean, you know, we, we've been able to attract, you know, Coley talked about, you know, the team, the buildup, you know, we have this, uh, I think, you know, in the world today, I think, you know, it's, I think many people would say that, you know, it's more divided than ever, you know, we're seeing a lot of, uh, uh, you know, just division, whether it's politics or policies or, you know, what, what have you. I think we, we've tried to build a company that, that really creates a, a, a highly inclusive culture um, from very, very diverse backgrounds and really celebrates that um, to try to come up with innovative solutions that can help take us forward and uh, help progress humanity. Um, you know, we have, a, we have a company value called Tap Into the Collective Genius um, that, that really sort of celebrates that contribution that's coming from very, very diverse areas within the company. So um, as Coley mentioned, you know, we, we have uh, people that have worked in the oil field for, you know, 20 plus years. Um, we also have, you know, uh, software engineers that have, uh, you know, graduated from top universities and built, you know, uh, uh, you know, critical uh, systems at, you know, big tech companies. And all of those people are now kind of working under the Crusoe umbrella. And they all have very different skill sets and very different things to contribute to the solution that we're trying to uh, build in aligning the future of computing infrastructure with the future of the climate. And, uh, you know, that, that, that creates a very, very unique culture. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's something that we take a lot of pride in and we try to celebrate. I mean, we try to come up with pragmatic solutions. I, I think, you know, one other argument around, uh, you know, the, uh, energy transition has been a lot of this, uh, you know, it, it's tough to make an argument to do something that's not economic. Um, and we, we feel like aligning economic interests with climate interest. Um, and then fueling, you know, it, it basically taps into the fuel of capitalism that can really accelerate really meaningful change and sort of making a difference between whether it's reducing the impact of flaring or whether it's accelerating development for more renewables by creating an economic offtake during off-peak hours and being able to curtail during peak moments, um, which is another uh, big effort that we have uh, in terms of uh, making grids cleaner um, and creating more stability with entirely renewably generated power. I think I just got the pun, Crusoe Energy. It's energy that's stranded. Exactly. Stranded on a desert island. J jump back in, Cully, and pick up on uh, that point. Uh, tell us a little bit about the logistical challenges that you face and how you're solving them. 
Yeah, so traditionally the the cause of flaring, you're correct, it is a logistical and it's an infrastructure problem. It's just this mismatch of what's called midstream and upstream. So midstream being pipelines and transportation systems for oil and gas, upstream being the drill bit, the drilling of of the new supply. And when upstream gets ahead of midstream, there's there's some excess that has to go somewhere. And if there's nowhere to go, it, it has historically gone to flare. So this would happen in places that are remote, they're far from the existing pipeline infrastructure. This would happen in places that get developed very quickly, like there's some kind of a boom that happens that's obviously been part of the history of the oil and gas and is, is boom and bust. When those booms occur, there can be a lot of drilling that happens very quickly um, by a bunch of independent operators that aren't you know coordinated necessarily, and the aggregate new supply comes on and it just overwhelms the existing infrastructure. And new pipelines can take years, if not decades, to build in terms of how long it can be to really get something permitted and all the land issues ironed out, depending on if you're, you know, a, a more of a gathering local type system or truly a interstate, you know, national scale um, pipeline that requires a lot of coordination of, of um, you know, right of way, land access and permitting to all go your way. And clearly we've seen examples where that just isn't even possible in some of these projects get completely shelved. So for all those reasons and several others, I mean, there are just you know, hydrostatic things that happen. If you're trying to cross a valley, it's hard to build a pipeline that works. Right. Um, there, can be, there can be pockets of gas that are long-term stranded, sometimes permanently stranded. I mean, I, I've known of fields that have never had a gas pipeline and they've only ever flared all the gas. Um, clearly that happens offshore. I mean, imagine if you're drilling, you know, historically West Africa would be a good example. These are huge oil discoveries. A lot of gas gets produced as a byproduct. There has not been a big domestic gas market in West Africa. And, you know, their next best alternative is like a pipeline to Portugal. Now, that's going to take a long time, right? right. And it, during the interim, that gas is going to flare. So there are all these problems that we've identified as we get deeper into this. Um, and we're just excited to be able to deliver an on-site solution for as, as long as needed until that pipeline might arrive. And, uh, and along the way, that, that's a very low-cost form of energy for us, obviously, uh, because it's a, it's a waste product, essentially, that we're able to capture. Um, but it produces an enormous environmental benefit. I view it as the lowest hanging fruit. I mean, my career, as I mentioned, has been in this intersection of energy, the environment, and the economy. I've never seen something that has a higher environmental ROI per dollar invested than killing a flare. Um, I mean, just knocking out that methane emissions and the fact that it can pay for itself is such a kind of powerful win-win scalable idea that um, we just feel like we've got a lot of running room to go with here. Yeah. As we come to the conclusion of this conversation, what final thoughts would you guys like to leave us with about what you guys are doing and about the future? Chase, first to you. So I guess the final thoughts I would leave with are, you know, I think when you look at the uh, the potential societal benefit that can be realized from uh, large-scale computing infrastructure being built, developed, utilized um, by you know the research community, um, by the blockchain community, um, you know by by the globe, um, it, it really is enormous. I think it's you know it's tantamount to the uh, the quality of life increase that we've seen from the boom in uh, fossil fuels over the last 150 years. Um, but if that 
infrastructure that supports that is not uh, aligned with the future of the climate, uh, it, it can be catastrophic and you know a potential sort of a extinction event for uh, humanity or you know many other species around, around the globe. Um, you know over the next uh, you know decades or hundreds of years, and uh, you know we, we really view this it, it to be a massive opportunity to uh, get alignment between. Uh, you know, that, that, that future of uh, computing infrastructure that can really create so much tangible benefit to humanity um, with uh, creating a sustainable world that we can all sort of uh, live and exist on. And, you know, being able to facilitate in, a, in, in an energy transition capacity that doesn't, uh, that won't, uh, that won't set us back significantly, um, you know, but by, by switching off the, uh, switching off oil and gas too quickly. Kelly, final thoughts. Yeah, I think that's well said. You know, um, just to kind of maybe put a finer point on it, it's just the, the, the one of the largest growth drivers of electricity demand is going to be cloud computing, right? The, the, any projection you look at shows this just hockey sticking demand for electricity, um, whether it, and it's not just crypto like we've talked about today, it's it's cloud broadly. There's a, just a ton of AI research and high performance computing coming online, and that's only going to accelerate um, that needs to be deployed to energy sources that are aligned with environmental goals. If it's not, it's going to just exacerbate and accelerate the climate problem. Um, and so we're trying to get ahead of that, we're trying to be thoughtful and find those energy sources where we can we can solve problems, do it economically. Um, our view is that there's two parts of, of the energy transition. There's uh, mitigating the impacts of the existing system. That's the fossil fuel system that we all currently depend on. And uh, we do that with flare mitigation. And then there is accelerating the transition to renewables, which fundamentally requires these intermittency solutions, things that are like batteries, like hydrogen or curtailable loads from data centers where you can turn on and off in response to intermittent supplies of electricity from wind and solar when it is not blowing or sunshining. Um, we, we, we can very much function like a battery in that respect, and it's complementary to renewables, and it can accelerate and improve the economics of renewables and ultimately get a higher percentage of renewables on the grid. Um, and, and so we have to work on both sides. It's, it's extending the climate runway, solving the current problem, and it's trying to build that new system and get there faster. Um, that's just what's really important to me and Chase and to our team. And we would love to uh, talk to any of your your uh, um, your viewers who might want to join that kind of a team. We're, we're certainly in a recruiting and hiring mode, and uh, we're looking for the best and brightest. And I have to believe a lot of those people listen to Real Vision, which is you know such a kind of primo content platform. A true entrepreneur, Kelly. That's a great pitch at the end. Uh, and I'm sure you're right. We have extraordinary viewers with amazing talents. Thank you both so much for joining us. This has been a fascinating conversation. I know I learned an incredible amount today about this about this subject. Really fascinating. I hope you guys will come back and join us soon. Thanks, Ash. We really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, sir. Thanks for watching, everyone. Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight.
So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com.